All right, so this morning, uh, we are continuing on in our series entitled Malachi's Modern Message. And in it, we're right in the middle of this conversation that God is having with that rebellious, obstinate teenager. He's talking with them about their behavior and about their attitude. Uh, and in the process, we've been learning so much about God's heart for them and about God's heart for us. And the first thing that God said to them and to us is, I have loved you. I've loved you with a covenant love. And the second thing he said is that you should love me back. I'm an awesome God, and you should love me with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. And then he says that we should love and honor each other, and especially the most important relationships because of the Imago Dei, the image of God in people. Now we see this progression beginning to emerge, this pattern all through the Bible where it goes like this. God loves you, you should love him back, and we should love one another. Now today, we're going to continue on to follow this conversation as it takes kind of a new turn. It goes somewhere that you might not quite expect as you're following along. So today's message is entitled, Malachi's Message on Messiah. Malachi's Message on Messiah. And this part of the conversation is about six verses long. It goes from... Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, through Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. So let's read the entire passage together to get a sense of it, and then we'll come back and unpack it together. Okay, ready? Malachi chapter 2, 17 to 3, 5. And it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, Where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Would you bow in prayer with me over the word this morning? God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for this love letter to us, God. And God, we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to understand what you're saying to us this morning. God, uh, help us be doers of the word and not hearers only. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, let's go back and look at these verses and, and see what they have to say to us today. What is the modern message of these verses for us today? So let's begin by looking at the first half of verse 17. And he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, this image is really, it's truly striking to me. It looks like God is looking across the table at them and, and he's kind of rubbing his eyes and, and, and rubbing his forehead. And uh, he says, you know, you're wearying me with all of these words. And, and, and I don't want you to rush over this half a verse. 
the God who loves them with covenant love, the God who is love, the God who is described as slow to anger, and the, the God who the Bible says is patient with you is now saying, my patience is growing thin. I'm growing weary of this. And, and as we're looking at this, it makes me kind of ask, what have these people done that this, this, this loving, patient, slow to anger God looks across the table and kind of gives them this warning, listen, I'm growing tired of your words. I'm growing weary. I'm losing patience. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I never want to be in that position where God looks at me and says, you know, I'm growing tired of how you're behaving or I'm growing tired of your attitude. You never want to be in that position where God looks at you and says, you know, I, I'm losing patience with you. They must have pushed it too far. You can't push him too far. You can't push him to a place where his patience runs out. And, and the problem with a culture that has a form of godliness, the problem with a culture that worships God outwardly, while holding on to the false gods of materialism and sensuality and pride, and that, that fails to see, it fails to see when God is wearied. It fails to see when God has run out of patience. And you can see this in their response to him. Look at it in the next verse. God said, you know, you've wearied me with your words, and the people respond by saying, how have we wearied you? God, how have we wearied you? God, what are you talking about? You're weary? How, how can... Anything that we're doing make you weary. They're playing innocent again. It's like saying, you know, you know God, you're going to have to help us here because, you know, really, we got nothing here. We have, we have no idea what, what you're talking about. So let's look at God's response. Verse 17, the end of it, he says, By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now, there are two issues here. Two things that God says that they're saying or doing that are wearying him. So let's look at them one at a time. The first is this. They're saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. All who do evil are good? I mean, why would anybody say that? Evil is good and God is pleased with it? I mean, that, that just sounds silly, doesn't it? It sounds ridiculous right on the face of it. Why would anybody be saying that? So, so here's what's happening. They're not really saying that out loud, right? Nobody says that out loud. But what is happening is that they're justifying evil. There's this thing within the sinful heart that wants to justify sin. Sin wants to justify itself. Sin wants to make itself look good. You can see it from the very beginning after Cain had killed his brother and God comes to him and, and begins to ask him about his whereabouts and, and Cain acts like, I, I don't know what you're talking about, God. All the way through the book of Revelation when God wrote to the, to the church at Thyatira and warned them against a woman in the church who was leading people into the worship of false gods and into sexual immorality, all the while she was claiming to be a prophet of the Lord. Sin wants to look good. Sin even wants to look spiritual. Sin wants to justify itself. Isaiah said it this way, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Now, can we talk? I mean... 
You talk about Malachi's modern message. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a day when increasingly what is evil is called good. What is evil in the eyes of God is, is held up and displayed as good and praiseworthy. And what is good is often called evil. What God calls good is portrayed as evil or it's mocked or ridiculed. You know, if you're going to live for God today, if you're going to live according to the Bible, if you're going to, to honor God, you're going to have to get used to the idea that a significantly large segment of our culture, of media, of advertising, of entertainment, and the broader culture is going to mock your standards and call good evil. Don't look for support for your Christian faith and your Christian walk in the media and entertainment industries in the broader culture. You won't find it there. They're often going to call what is good evil and what is evil good. Now, we could stay here all day long. I, I could have each of you stand up and share um, some experience you've had where good was called evil or, or evil was called good. So uh, we don't want to stay all day long. Let me give you just a few examples. The other day, you know, I was uh, riding in the car and I heard this ad uh, for the lottery. And this really happy person came on and telling me how good gambling is because it helps seniors because it helps so many other people. It's good. You ought to participate because it's really good. And to listen to so many in our culture, you would think that gambling is good. It has such a positive impact on our culture. But the truth is that gambling appeals to covetousness. And it appeals to a lack of contentment and often leads to poverty and to addictions and to strains on marriages and families. Gambling is not good. It's damaging and it appeals to evil desires in our heart. How about this one? Sensuality. All kinds of sensuality and sexual sins are portrayed as good in books and in magazines and in movies and TV and in culture. Sex outside of marriage, adultery, affairs, homosexuality. All of these are portrayed as good and right and wholesome. But God in his word calls all of them sin. Say how long do you think until God gets weary of us calling those things good? Or how about this one? Abortion. You know, abortion is spoken of in our culture and held up by many leaders as being good and those who provide it as being uh, good and maybe even heroic and kind to women. You know, I recently saw this hat on social media. And it says, Planned Parenthood makes America great. I mean, Really? The number one abortion promoter and provider in the country makes America great. All right, let me say this as straightforwardly and with as much compassion as I probably can. Abortion is not good in God's eyes. Now, it's forgivable. Anyone who, who who's, if you've had an abortion, it's forgivable, like anything else, if, anything that we bring to God and say, you know, God, this, this happened in my life and it was wrong and, I, and I'm sorry. It's forgivable, but that doesn't make it good. It's not good. It's very, very bad. God says, for, for, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Abortion is bad for babies. Abortion is bad for women. It's evil in God's eyes. You know, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, this morning going through all the philosophical and scientific reasons and theological reasons that we believe that life is given by God at conception. But I've just got this one question. If abortion is so good, 
then why is it considered unacceptable to show a picture of one anywhere? I mean, I'm not going to, but if I were to show you a picture of one on the screen this morning, you would be horrified and offended. And so think about it for, an, for a minute. In an age where nearly anything bloody and gory is acceptable in television and movies, showing a picture of an abortion is considered unacceptable. And if someone tries to, they'll usually get met with loud objections from all sides. So if a picture of one is that objectionable, how can it possibly be good? And then consider for a minute that God sees one, he witnesses one in real time about once every 30 seconds in our country alone. How long do you think until God gets weary of that being called good? And then let me give you one more example. You know, God said in the scriptures, God created all that there is in six days. And, and each time God looked at what he created, he said it was good. Then at the end of the sixth day, it says that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God said that it was very good. And you know, I, I never thought I'd ever have to say this from the pulpit, but according to God, there are only two genders. You know, and I know there are some people out there who, who in our culture who will get angry at me and scream at me and whose hair will catch on fire and their heads will spin around when I say that. But according to God's word, there are only two genders. And you don't get to pick which one you are. You don't get to say, I identify that way and that's, that, that's what I am. The Bible says... That is determined not at birth, but at conception. And not only that, but God's idea is very good. If you're a man, God says, that's very good. If you're a woman, God says, that's very good. It's something that should be celebrated. It's very good. And some might say, you know what, Pastor Paul, uh, uh, isn't this, what does this matter right now? Isn't this debate just relegated to some college campuses somewhere? And the answer is, unfortunately, no. You know there's a town just over an hour from here in Pennsylvania? where they, a couple years ago, enacted a policy where anyone can use the bathrooms and locker rooms of the sex that they identify with. And there were six children whose families sued over that, uh, saying it violated their privacy. And do you know that a federal judge ruled that, now follow this, girls have the right to privacy from members of the opposite sex, their right to privacy from members of the opposite sex entirely depends on how a boy identifies his own gender and vice versa. You know, my previous church, we already had someone approach us one time and say, you know what, my, my son wants to go on this uh, uh, retreat, and we want him to go, but he identifies as a girl, so he's going to have to be housed with the girl. I mean, this is not something that's just stuck in academia somewhere. This is something that is happening where you live. It happens where your children and your grandchildren go to school, and it's beginning to happen where you go to church as well. We're beginning to have to deal with this. God says that he created male and female in his own image, and he said that it is very good. These are just a few of the ways that we call good evil and evil good, and, and we could go on all day with that, right? They were saying all who do evil in, are good in the eyes of the Lord. Is it any, any wonder that God was wearied at them. And then there's the second is issue. They said, where's the God of justice? And, and this one is really more of, of a complaint than a question. It's kind of that, that, that old argument that goes something like this. You know, if God is a good God, 
then why is there evil in the world? If God is a good God, then why is there evil in the world? So it's like they're looking at God and saying, you know, God, if you're so good, why is there all of this evil in the world? God, this evil thing has happened and nobody has paid for it. God, if you're so good, how come you're letting all of these evil things happen? By the way, have you noticed that nobody says, hey, God, did you notice that, that evil thing I did? How come you haven't punished me yet? Right? It's always the other guy who did the evil thing. No one says, I'm just saying, right? No one says, God, did you see that evil thought I had? And, and you let it go. You didn't... You, you haven't punished me for it. It's always the other guy. And you know, there's a lot that we could say about the problem of evil in the world. We could spend a whole series of messages talking about it. But let me just summarize how this conversation usually goes. And I, and I don't mean to gloss over any important questions, but just for the sake of time, I want to get to the main questions that people have. You know, so some injustice happens, it's small or large, and people get, begin to ask, you know, God, God, if you're good. How could this injustice happen? And the answer is that people are sinful. There's sin in the world. Injustices happen every day, all day long, because there's sin in the world. And some injustices are small and inconsequential, and, and, and some injustices are, are large and earth-shattering. But all are, are a result of sin. Have you ever noticed, too, that God gets blamed for an awful lot of human behavior? You know, so, somebody does this horrible, awful thing, and people look at God and say, if you're good, how could that happen? And, and God didn't do it. God didn't motivate it. You know, that person did it. God gets blamed for an awful lot of our behavior. God, if you're good, how could this happen? But then even after we acknowledge that evil happens because of sin in the world, there's still another question. The question is this, God, why didn't you stop it? You're all-powerful. Why didn't you prevent this evil thing from happening? God, if you're all-powerful and all-knowing and you're good, why didn't you stop this evil thing from happening? Where is the God of justice? You know, and sometimes these questions are asked in all sincerity. People are, are struggling uh, with, with these ideas and struggling to grapple with, with who God is and uh, and how God can be good, and how can there be evil in the world. But here in our passage, it looks more like it's an accusation. God, if you were just, you'd fix some things around here. God, if you were just, you'd right some wrongs around here. If you were just, you'd prevent some things from happening. God, we're not sure that you're really just at all. And, and that's really what they were saying here in our passage. So is it any wonder that God was getting weary with them? So now let's look at God's response to them, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. God answers both of these questions, the questions about evil in the world and the question about justice with the same answer. The Messiah is going to come. You've got this problem that you can't figure out, good from evil. You, you can't tell right from wrong. The Messiah is going to come. And he's going to teach you right from wrong. You've got this problem with injustice. Well, the Messiah is going to come and mete out justice. You've got problems in your world. What you need is the Messiah. And look at the two phrases here. The Lord, the Lord you are seeking and the Lord whom you desire. 
This Messiah that you've heard about, the Messiah that Moses talked about, the Messiah that the prophets all told you about, the Messiah that the psalmist talked about, the one you've heard is going to come and make everything right. He is going to come. Don't give up hope, he's saying. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't forgotten you. And in the next few verses, God is going to describe what happens when the Messiah comes. Now, because we have the benefit of hindsight and the entire revealed word of God, we know that the Messiah comes twice. He came once 2,000 years ago as the suffering servant Messiah, and he's going to come at the end of the age as the reigning Messiah. But, but these Israelites wouldn't really have been able to see that. That Looking forward, it would have been flattened out a little bit to them. Right? It would have looked like one coming. And so um, for these Israelites, they had some difficulty distinguishing between the two. But let's look at it as God talks to them. Verse 2, the beginning of verse 2. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Now, these are kind of some interesting questions, I think. They're rhetorical questions. And they seem to be designed to make them pause. They seem to be designed to say, you know, are you, are you really ready for his coming? Are you, are you sure it's going to be what you think it is? You know, when Jesus finally did come, even though John the Baptist came first and prepared the way, they still weren't really ready, I don't think, for who the Messiah really was going to be. They had this idea that he was going to be a ruling, reigning Messiah who was going to kick the Romans out, and there was just going to be prosperity all over the place and, and, and blessing, and the Messiah would reign in Jerusalem. They weren't really prepared, I don't think, for a suffering servant Messiah. They weren't prepared for a Messiah who was going to go to their own temple and turn all the money changers' tables over. They weren't prepared for a Messiah who was going to die the just for the unjust and to bring us to God. <clears throat> so he says, who can stand? Are you sure you can endure it? And then he goes on to describe some of what is going to, it's going to look like when the Messiah comes. And, and basically, the rest of chapter 2, I mean, verse 2 and verses 3 and 4, describe the suffering servant Messiah at his first coming. And then verse 5 kind of describes the reigning Messiah at the second coming. So let's look at it. Going on in verse 2, it says, For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So God uses two metaphors here to illustrate what the Messiah will be like. He's like a silversmith or a goldsmith who heats up precious metals and removes the impurities so that it can be pure and beautiful and refined. And he's also like a professional cleaner, like someone who takes dirt and stains out of clothing and makes them look new again. He's saying, you know, when the Messiah comes, he's going to refine you. He's going to purify your hearts. He's going to wash you. He's going to make you clean. He's going to teach you right from wrong. It's like God is saying to them, uh, for those who respond to the Messiah, there's going to be no more of this, this inability to tell right from wrong. There's going to be no more of this calling evil good and calling good evil. He's going to clean you. He's going to wash you. He's going to purify you and refine you. The Messiah is God's answer for the problem of sin and evil in the world. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes what happens. He's talking to the Corinthians, and he says this, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. When you come to Jesus, when you express repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes into your life like a refiner and He purifies you and He makes you clean. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is God's answer for sin and evil in the world. And, and, then, and then look what else happens as we go on in verse 3. It says, then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. Righteous offerings, acceptable offerings. When the Messiah comes and purifies your hearts, there will be no more of those lame, weak, diseased offerings. There will be no more trying to bribe God to look the other way when you sin. No, no, no more of that. And this is awesome. I hope you're really catching this this morning. Because it says, now you bring offerings in righteousness. It says, now you are acceptable to God and you bring offerings in righteousness. It doesn't say that you bring offerings to become righteous. It says that you bring offerings in righteousness. You're already right with God when you bring your offerings to him. And let me show you what those offerings look like in the New Testament. For the New Testament believer in Jesus, it's no longer about bulls and sheep and goats and, and doves and other sacrificial animals that, that could never really remove guilt and remove sin. There's only two kinds of offerings that New Testament believers bring. One is found in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. It says this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Continually offer a sacrifice of praise. You know what? That's all the time. I mean, that's all, continually, all the time. That's all the time praising God. You know what? That's at church, praising God, offering up a sacrifice of praise. That's in your home, praising God, letting words of praise come out of your mouth at your home, wherever you are, all day long, words of praise, continually offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. That's a New Testament offering in righteousness. And then the second one is this, in Romans 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We offer our lives as living sacrifices to God. God, my whole life is an offering to you. Everything I am, everything that I have, everything that I could be, God, I offer to you as an act of worship. All my talent, all my abilities, all my resources, I offer it all to you, God. I'm your steward. God, may my life be a living sacrifice and a worship offering to you. All right, let's go on. Verse 5. And after that, we're going to conclude. 
He says in verse 5, So I will come and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So this is God's answer to the question of justice, to the question, where is the God of justice? This is God's answer to the complaint that it looks like, like God is not doing anything about injustice in their world. That suffering servant Messiah who cleanses and refines and makes anyone who comes to him acceptable God is acceptable to God is going to come again. And when he comes again, this is what he's going to do to those who would not bow their knee to him here when they have the opportunity. It says he puts them on trial. He testifies against all evil. The day is coming when the God of justice will deal with all injustice in the world. The day is coming when he will put an end to all injustice. And there's a reason that he has been waiting to do this, a reason that he hasn't yet punished all injustice. Now, to the Israelites of this day, of Malachi's day, it looked as though that maybe God wasn't just after all. It looked as though maybe God didn't really care about justice or injustice. But that wasn't it at all. Let me show it to you in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. This book is written to all Christians everywhere of all time. And it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God puts off his justice because he is merciful. His heart is filled with mercy. He wants everyone to come to him. He wants everyone to have an opportunity to come to him. He wants everyone to experience his cleansing and his purifying. He wants everyone to be acceptable to God. It's God's mercy that stays his justice for a time. But the day is coming when the Messiah will complete his messianic mission. You can see it here and in many other places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. The day is coming when Jesus will return and set up his messianic kingdom and, and all injustice will be dealt with. All unrighteousness and evil will be dealt with and eliminated. The day is coming when God deals with injustice. Now, now let me show it to you a little bit and, and this is how we're going to conclude. I want to show you a little bit of what it looks like. In the book of Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 11, it says this. The Apostle John said, I saw heaven open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings 
and Lord of Lords. Jesus, the Messiah, overthrows the kingdoms of this world. And then it says that the devil who deceived them is cast into the lake of fire. And so the Messiah takes care of the devil. And then what happens next is this. Look at Revelation chapter 20. He says this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. God deals with injustice. And all who have not had their sin and injustice dealt with by the suffering servant Messiah now have to face the reigning Messiah. And I want you to look where all of this is headed. It's headed to a place that really everybody longs for. It's headed to a kingdom where there is no injustice. It's headed to a kingdom where there is no evil and there is no suffering. To a kingdom where there is God and people and blessing and joy and love all the time. Let me read it for you in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And that, my friends, is Malachi's modern message of the Messiah. Hallelujah. 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 Oh.